Hello, and welcome to this episode of AntCast. This is a podcast that brings you deep into conversation with global thinkers, innovators, and entrepreneurs on groundbreaking technologies and how they're shaping our lives for better or for worse. I'm your host, R.T. Warfield, coming to you from London. In this episode of AntCast, we're talking about the sports industry and the recent development of sports NFTs with technology and media industry expert, Paul Lee. Paul is a partner at Deloitte and their global head of research for technology, media, and telecommunications, or TMT for short. In the past year, we've seen NFTs, short for non-fungible tokens, making headlines everywhere. This technology is also creating huge value for sports leagues, teams, and players, as they create limited digital copies of memorable moments in sport on the blockchain into NFTs. Today, we have Paul to share with us from an industry standpoint, what this innovation offers, and other exciting developments in the wider TMT market. Welcome to AntCast, Paul. It's great to be here with you. Thank you for the invitation. Thank you. So besides what I mentioned in the brief intro, uh, Paul, could you tell us a little bit more about yourself and what specific areas you focus on in your research? Yes, of course. So I'm part of a team within Deloitte, um, which is dedicated to understanding what's happening in the technology, media, and telecoms market. So I've been doing this role for about 21 years now. Um, and it's quite unusual in professional services to have someone full-time and a partner doing research. Um, but the rationale for this is that the market is so complex with so many moving parts that you can only do this um, on a full-time basis. So trying to understand all the different elements of tech, media, and telecoms, uh, all the enablers and all the constraints and the opportunities uh, like sports and NFTs. So in case you or our listeners are wondering why Antcast is doing a sports episode, I, I want to give a little bit of context. So um, Ant Group has always been interested in sports and um, we have been supporting many sports ventures, including uh, an eight-year partnership with UEFA, as well as our sponsorship of China's women's football. And, you know, we're also passionate about blockchain technology. So tell me, Paul, are you a sports fan yourself? Um, I'm a sports fan. I'm not a fervent sports fan, but certainly there are people within my family um, who are massive sports fans, particularly uh, for football or soccer, depending on which part of the world that you're in. And uh, do you yourself, do you play any sports yourself or have you? Um, I wish I uh, played more sports. So what I enjoy doing for sports uh, is largely uh, cycling. and uh, But it's not on a sporty basis. It's more on a recreational basis and trying to counteract my pandemic paunch uh, that have grown over the last uh, couple of years during the lockdown. Uh, you mentioned football. Do you support a football club or, you, or if you want to say... <laughs> so within our family, uh, so my wife's from Barcelona, so uh, Barcelona Football Club is heavily followed. And also there's a link there to uh, Manchester City um, because the former um, manager and player, uh, Guardiola, is at Manchester City. So that's kind of the UK uh, affiliation. Uh, but following football is uh, fantastic because it's the most important thing in the world and also the least important thing in the world. So it offers the best of both. That's the perfect way of describing it. So uh, we know that you look closely at the digitalization of the sports industry. Mm -hmm. so could you tell us some of the big trends that you've seen over the past few years? Yeah, I mean, the past two years have been turbulent because of COVID and because of uh, lockdowns. Um, and there have been lots of experiments um, in the sports field um, because 
um, of COVID. And one of the really interesting experiments that was happening um, probably exactly two years ago was the attempt to see whether you could use virtualized versions of sports. Um, so there were virtualized versions of horse races um, using AI to try and simulate what the outcome would be between um, horses um, from different generations. And also there were um, car races, uh, things like Formula One, um, which were also taking place using simulators um, and real drivers. And what I find fascinating about that was, you know, there was a lot of interest in the idea of it. Um, but as soon as the real events came back, um, that's when the interest really rebounded. So what that said to me is that there is a really large um, interest in actual real events. Um, and, you know, the human psyche is such that you've got to have this foundation of actual events, but then you can place a lot of um, different formats around it. So people want to have clips, they want to have the full race, um, you know, the real diehard fans want to have, you know, the interviews. And you can use digital um, genres to distribute that. But at the core, it's a real-life event. Right. So do you think uh, COVID, people were mm -hmm. deprived of live sports, and so now they want to really go back and mm -hmm. see them in person. But do you think COVID had a huge impact, uh, you know, in some of these other digital developments? I think, you know, when you look at the larger industry, um, so in terms of all revenues uh, coming in, if you look at um, elite sports as an industry, including everything, including match day attendance, um, including sponsorship, including licensing and apparel, um, then I think what COVID did is reaffirmed the value of, you know, the three major pillars. Uh, within there. And then one of the other outcomes has been more innovation around other sources of, of revenue, um, one of which is NFTs. Um, but it's part of a longer term cycle of finding l different ways of cutting and commercialising um, the actual fundamental event. So at the foundation is the, um, the football match or the Grand Prix race or the boxing match. Um, and you can cut it in lots of different ways. Um, and that will just continue um, over time. Okay, so let's let's talk about these sports uh, NFTs. Um, we've seen mm -hmm. the popularity of these sports NFTs explode in 2021. And for those in the audience who don't know about sports NFTs, these NFTs usually feature star players and, you know, and a memorable performance or you know, a play. For example, a clip of a touchdown or a basketball dunk or an amazing goal uh, in a football match that's then minted on the blockchain. So in many ways, they're kind of similar maybe to sports trading cards. Uh, each NFT is a, like a unique digital copy and thus has a predefined limited number of copies, therefore kind of creating a scarcity. So um, that's why we're seeing some of the most coveted NFTs traded for hundreds of thousands of dollars on the marketplace. So Paul... Uh, you have been following the, the developments of sports NFTs recently. Mm -hmm. What are the most successful sports NFT projects that have been released and what new projects are we expecting to see? I would just say at the moment, there seem to be two applications of sports NFTs. Um, one of them is collecting, which you've referred to, and the other is speculation. 
Now, speculation, I think, always gets more headlines because it's always fascinating when someone becomes suddenly very wealthy because of a massive rise in value of an asset and also when the opposite happens, so when um, value plummets. Speculation is always fascinating, but what I think is a lot more enduring is mass market mainstream collection. And to your point around trading cards, that's about collecting. It's not about speculation. Speculation is um, perhaps a byproduct or a niche within there. And so there are some assets in terms of trading cards or other memorabilia which um, appreciate in value, sometimes massively, but this is very rare. But the act of collecting is something which um, the regular fan, uh, the regular person with the regular budget um, can relate to. And I think the enduring application of sports NFTs will be about collection and the everyday collector and the everyday fan rather than the professional buyer collector or speculator right so when you say regular fan i mean you're talking uh you know people you, you could buy one for 10 pounds so or exactly. something like that that's exactly it you know so for kids you know it's it's having pocket money um and you know if you look at say what the mass market is around um sports at, um collectibles um there are you know the trading cards which have always had a low entry point and it's from a few dollars or a few pounds uh, so it's similar to what you pay if you're buying something physical and then um like another level would be um clothing or scarves and that might be say tens of dollars or pounds or whatever uh, and sometimes some of these things become really really valuable um, but it's a um, uh, it, it's a minority uh, of cases. Um, but when you have um, tens of millions of fans paying um, a few dollars, you know it's a significant market. But also, I think it's an enduring market versus a few people paying hundreds of thousands of dollars for a particular asset. Yeah, I mean, isn't it also a way for the the clubs uh, or you know the sporting teams to engage with the fans mm -hmm. as another form of engagement as well? Yeah, it's another form of engagement. Um, and, you know, if we think about our lives, so they are steadily becoming more digital, but with a physical anchor. You know, I think the physical anchor never shifts. But in terms of um, how we um, buy things, and, you know, Ant will know this particularly well, so a lot more of it is going to um, the smartphone as a uh, ultimate universal remote control and also repository. But also we show things off on our smartphones. And it doesn't seem that long ago when it was a fascinating activity, when people took photographs of food um, and displayed it on their smartphones and shared it via their smartphones. And um, NFTs are an evolution of that behavior of capturing content and displaying content and sharing it via smartphones. And I think a lot of um, the underlying driver of sports NFTs um, is the smartphone and the smartphone as a repository and as a display. Right. So it's another form of engagement and it's also like another revenue stream, right? Yeah, it's, it's another revenue stream. And you know, if you look back at the last 20, 30 years, the revenue streams have been, um, have been growing in type. So there's been um, the televised version of an event and also the live event for decades. Um, and in the last 20 years, you've had, because of um, digital transformation, the ability also to offer for sale 
like short clips, like 30 second clips. You've also had the ability to separate out um, the rights between straightforward broadcast um, but also um, online broadcast, as well as the split between uh, live broadcast and catch-up and highlights. And, and what's just basically happening is um, NFTs are another genre, another way of cutting that content and generating additional revenue. But what's a little bit different about NFTs, because they're basically wrapped around a contract known as a smart contract, um, and within that, you can stipulate um, if there is to be a commission on future sales that flows back to the originator um, of that NFT. So if you had a club which created an NFT and it's uh, got traded, then every time it got traded, you could have, say, 5% or whatever was in that contract of the value of that transaction flowing back to the club. So you've got this perpetual depending on the contract, um, revenue stream. And I think that's very valuable for clubs because lots of revenue streams um, are for a limited duration. So like shirt sponsorship, for example, um, would be um, limited. So, so this is a good long-term revenue stream uh, and sports entities um, value that. Yeah, right. So, you know, we, we did a podcast on the art world and NFTs and you know, talking about like you know, mm -hmm. an artist sells a painting and then it goes up in value, and then the person that last bought bought it gets the profit, not the artist, mm -hmm. right? But with NFTs, you can put it in the contract, as you're saying, right? So it's a constant revenue stream to you know, and whatever the amount is in the in the in the contract that's on on the blockchain. So yeah, as you say, it's perpetual yep. revenue stream. Yeah, it's really it's it's, it's very interesting. Mm -hmm. So uh, how large is this market in sports NFTs currently? Do you know? Yeah, I would say it's um, still in its infancy um, right now. So in terms of sizing it, you can look at the volume of um, transactions made. Uh, and we expect for this year it will be in the billions. And um, I don't want it to be too specific because a lot of it depends on um, how the economy evolves, uh, the challenges to cost of living, and also the availability of easy-to-acquire um, NFTs. And again, I think at the moment you've got like two categories of NFT. There are some NFTs which um, put a lot of complexity onto the buyer and require you to um, set up separate wallets to own the NFTs in. Um, but I think the mass market approach requires making acquiring and trading an NFT as easy as buying a song um, off a mainstream uh, service um, and then replaying it uh, on your phone. So ease of use is fundamental to the growth of the market. And I don't think we have sufficient ease of use at the moment. It's still very much early adopter and kind of um, limited in a sense to people who are uh, willing to understand concepts of buying and selling which um, they hadn't been used to before. Right, right. That that makes a lot of sense. Um, so uh, since you've been following this, what are some of the coolest NFTs that you've seen? Can you describe? Yeah, it's a good question. So a year ago, I was fascinated by the fact that you could integrate video into an NFT. And I was thinking, well, you know, this is what um, really captures the value of having the ability to acquire 
uh, and display larger video files. Um, but you know, when I think of how humans react um, and what they respond to, I expect NFTs are going to be moving more to um, an, a single still image as the core um, source. So, you know, if you've got an NFT displayed on, for example, um, your uh, phone as the lock image, you don't show videos, you show a still image. Um, and I think it's very easy to fall in love with the complexity of the technology versus what humans actually want to do. And you know, kind of counterintuitively, I think the coolest NFTs will simply be um, a iteration of the images that we use to capture iconic sports moments. So it will be images uh, that emerge. Now that's not very high tech, but I expect that's what will happen. Um, and it will be higher and higher resolution images versus videos. But a year ago would have gone, like the more complex it is, um, the cooler it is. But now I actually think the simpler it is, um, the more commercial and appealing and uh, the greater utility that will be derived from it. Right, so uh, that, that makes me uh, wonder about how uh, the like the rights usage part works, like I, I'm not quite clear. So like you're talking about still image, right? So does the player have to sign off on it and the team and the, and the who took the photo? Like how, how does that work? Like, is there a rights? Yep, that's a really good question. And um, I mean, rights vary by country, by league and by sport. So if we want to go for the ultimate complexity, so if we have, for example, um, a match, a football match, and I'm using like the European version of football versus the US version of football, which I, I, I don't understand well enough to be able to use as an example. Um, <laughs> right. Yeah. So you know, if we think of um, image rights, so when it comes to, uh, let's say, someone scoring a goal, uh, so there'll be image rights which are owned by the player there'll be image rights which are owned by the um, entity which captured that particular image, so the uh, camera operator um, and that person's employer. Uh, there are image rights which are owned by the club and there are image rights which are owned by the league. So in some markets, so for example the US, um, then the ownership is a lot clearer and I think that's one advantage for that market. Um, in Europe, the image rights um, are a lot less clearly defined. And until those image rights are apportioned um, and understood, then the market won't attain its full potential. Now that may feel like a real challenge to the market, but it's worth remembering that, you know, when you um, the market emerged for, say, uh, showing uh, video clips and highlights, nobody knew who owned those rights. But because it was in everyone's interest to agree an apportionment, um, that's become something which is better understood now. Um, but we still need to go through the kind of pain of assigning and allocating uh, different shares uh, of rights. Um, and so that's one hurdle um, to go through. And I think you need to be doing NFTs for the mass market at a league level um, to enable collections to build up because 
Um, you don't want to have partial solutions. You don't even want to have, say, in the English Premier League, there are 10, 20 teams, and 10 out of 20 isn't good enough. Or even 15 out of 20 isn't good enough if you don't have three of the um, big six uh, teams in the English Premier League. So you need to have the entire league. And all of that requires negotiation. Right. So uh, if at some point we do have standardization of apportionment, uh, you know, with this mm-hmm. worldwide, let's just say we get to that point. Um, and you mm-hmm. could and you could secure the rights for something um, if it was possible to happen 20 years ago, like an amazing play in some famous game 20 years ago. Uh, is it possible to generate an NFT of something that happened far in the past? Yeah, I'd say without a doubt. Um, so you know, one of the great things um, is uh, there have been lots of historical fantastic moments, iconic moments. Um, also, even if those images were captured in, let's say, standard resolution, um, it's possible to remaster those files um, and to um, you know recreate them in much higher resolution um, with better colors. Um, and this is something which is happening, say, even for Beatles tracks being remastered in spatial audio from the original analog tapes which were created um, over 50 years ago. So you've got that ability to to remaster legacy um, content. So you've got this trove of iconic moments um, which could be reconverted into um, content that could be um, sold, traded, nurtured as uh, NFTs. Right. So um, if a sports league or franchise have, you know, a sizable following fan base and they plan to monetize through blockchain technology and NFT, so uh, what are the steps and the logistical infrastructure needed to enable a successful release of that NFT? Yeah, so the core thing is to have a really great uh, world-class user interface. So any friction is going to reduce the size of the addressable market. And uh, at the moment, I would say there is a lot of friction in terms of user interfaces for most of the NFTs which are available out there. So it's something which a niche can engage with. Um, and that happens you know, a lot with um, any form of digitization of technology. I recall back in the 90s how hard it was to do digital music tracks unless you had um, you know, the time to work out how to you know, control different MP3s versus where we are now in terms of um, ease of use. So ease of use is absolutely fundamental. Right, makes a lot of sense. Uh, So um, blockchain and NFTs have been criticized for the huge amount of energy consumption uh, it uses due to Mm -hmm. the enormous computing power required. Um, So, uh, but we're also hearing about greener and more efficient blockchain emerging. Mm -hmm. Uh, So what are the cleaner or greener blockchains out there today and how do they do it differently from the others? Yeah, I mean, I think it's worth bearing in mind in terms of what the blockchain is fundamentally. um, it, It is a... Um, vast ledger or, or spreadsheet. Um, it's it's a record, um, which ideally um, should be uh, absolute. So, without the ability for any individual or any entity um, to um, to corrupt it or to, to, to change it, and 
Um, the way in which, um, say, uh, blockchains have worked historically is via a process of proof of work, um, which, as you say, is all about um, energy intensity and rising energy intensity. Um, and it's a significant uh, consumer of um, energy, which delivers, let's say, you know, relatively little benefit on a macro basis. So if I look at, say, data centers, they use a lot of energy, but relative to the utility they deliver, um, it is, uh, I would say, uh, something justifiable and become more efficient over time. Um, proof of work becomes less efficient over time, which is the wrong trend. So what we're moving to is blockchains which rely on proof of stake. Um, so this is something which doesn't require arrays of uh, processing units to generate coins, but is a, a much simpler um, process in terms of energy usage, and it's much greener. So some of the NFTs which are out there at the moment um, are using uh, blockchains which are based on uh, proof of stake. And for the market to really grow, you have to have proof of stake, and you also have to have the ability to cope with large numbers of transactions happening simultaneously, which is another constraint on some blockchains at the moment. That's really interesting. Um, uh, so uh, as we see that digitalization has provided a new and uh, rapidly growing revenue stream for the sports industry, uh, what lessons do you think sports NFTs can offer other media and entertainment players? Um, I think you know what essentially NFTs are doing. You know, if we think about the history of what technology has done to media, um, it's enabled replication of content with ever greater fidelity. Um, so you know, even if you go back to the Middle Ages and the uh, invention of the uh, printing press, um, that was about the an ability to replicate the, um, the written word without requiring handwriting. And, you know, and this was a revolution in European you know, over 500 years ago, probably in other civilizations that happened even before. But each time, you know, the changes were really fundamental. And if I think of the last 100 years, things like the photocopier or the digital camera uh, or even the screenshot, you know, enable um, replication to happen um, even, you know, ever more readily. So what the NFT is doing is kind of reversing that and it's um, retrofitting scarcity onto a um, piece of digital content. And the reason why that matters is it enables more value to be um, created uh, from a particular um, piece of content. And I think the underlying message around this is, you know, there are always more ways to generate revenue um, from the underlying product, uh, you know, which is a content, uh, the, the underlying uh, contest. So be it the football match or the boxing match or the um, swimming race or whatever. So when you've got that physical, under, you know, fundamental uh, event, uh, there are lots of ways to generate revenue from that using um, digital means. And NFTs are just part of that path. Right, right. So um, I know that uh, video games is where the concept of digital assets was uh, first pioneered. Mm -hmm. But NFTs are like, you know, fundamentally different from those, you know, in-game items, you know, and skins. And we're seeing some new online games where, uh, you know, in-game items are actually minted on the mm -hmm. blockchain. 
but what are the bigger uh, game studios attitudes and approaches to NFTs? And um, are we expecting to see NFTs integrated into the bigger video game titles? Yeah, I, I think it's a really good question. So digital assets um, have become very, very popular, have become mass market, have become familiar via uh, mobile games and more recently some console games and PC games. And, you know, it's a bit of a stretch uh, for us to imagine that digital first content can become valuable, can become tradable. Um, but I think a lot of consumers have become familiar with that. In the same way also, you know, if we think about um, music tracks, um, now we're at the phase where music is recorded digitally and shared digitally and stored digitally. So music, I would say, is even a predecessor um, to that um, behavior. In terms of video games, and NFTs. I do expect, um, for example, the um, sort of placing of, uh, say, some of the skins that a character or an avatar may wear um, into a blockchain um, and turn into an NFT is something which will happen. Um, I think it will take many years to become a very large industry um, and it will be part of the revenue mix. Um, and this is one thing that always to bear in mind is NFTs won't be for everyone, um, but there will be uh, a large segment of the market which will enjoy video games to the extent that they, they want to have perpetual ownership of an element of it to remind themselves of games that they've played or experience that they've had um, within those games. In the same way that, uh, say, at a, let's say, a football match, people may have bought a scarf to commemorate an event they went to. And an NFT is a digital version, a digital souvenir. Right. So um, taking a step back from the sports industry and uh, and gaming, uh, you know, video gaming, uh, and, and knowing that your research spans very broadly across technology, media, and telecom mm -hmm. sector, um, what other new technologies or consumer behaviors have been brought on or maybe expedited by COVID? And do you think any of them are here to stay? So a year ago, or even two years ago, I did think that there were going to be fundamental changes in terms of how we do um, sports. Um, but I don't think that's the case now. So in terms of what COVID changed, um, it, you know, we're still in 2022. But I would say in three or four years time, we will look back. And a lot of 20 to 22 or even 23, would have been regarded as a um, an aberration, a bit of a blip. So when I look at, for example, how the sports industry is monetizing now in Europe, it's more or less gone back to what it was doing before. Um, there are some changes which are happening, but they're not due to COVID, they're despite COVID. So in Europe, what I'm seeing, and also in the US market, is a um, big tilt towards women's sports, women's elite sports, but from a very low base. And um, if I look at, for example, you know, using Barcelona as an example, so this year they've had two football matches which were attended by uh, over 90,000 people for a women's um, football match. And, you know, even a couple of years ago, this would have been uh, unconceivable. But the thing about those matches is it shows, you know, what demonstrates value is people attending a physical event. 
And the revenue generation you get from a physical event is really significant. So if that match were only to have existed um, as a stream, I think the value would be lower. Um, if the match were to be between individuals playing with avatars, the value would be even lower. So a couple of years back, there were lots of questions around, so is this the era for esports? Do we need to have physical athletes? And I think the answer has been shown to be yes. People like physical contests between real individuals, and they're happy to watch it in many different ways, but it's definitely not the case that physic, you know, so avatars playing avatars lacks the jeopardy of physical individuals playing physical individuals and perhaps getting hurt. Um, and so th that's one of the major uh, things that I've taken away from the last couple of years. Right. That's sport. So, I mean, you do research in, in other areas, right? In mm -hmm. TMT. So uh, do, do you think it's it, the case for the other areas you researched that really COVID, again, there were no new consumer behaviors that are long lasting, the same case? Yeah, I mean, I think it's, you know, it's it's still quite early to tell. And, you know, there's lots of data which is still left to shake out. Um, and the message that I'm getting from a lot of our clients at the moment is, um, have we been misled by the behaviours that were constrained and shaped and moulded by COVID? So when we look at, for example, demand for, let's say, tablets and PCs, um, it surged in 2020 because you had um, a massive move to working from home amongst those who could do. And so demand you know, rocketed and you might have had devices which may have been lying in warehouses about to be uh, destroyed, suddenly becoming valuable. And so you have that distortion in the market, which, um, because memories are short, reshapes what people expect. Um, but you can see, you know, particularly in some of the stock market corrections happening at the moment, that, you know, companies which were regarded as stellar back in 2020 are no longer regarded in that way now. So, so there's, there is currently a reappraisal of value um, happening. One of the more enduring changes is likely to be where people work. And I think this will take years to fully shake out in terms of the optimal place to work. So there's definitely a benefit um, in being able to work at home. For some people, they can concentrate more, be more productive at home. Um, but there's also lots of learning that you get from being amongst other people in real time. And you know, at the moment, we try and put a lot of our working days into half hour slots, which are sort of um, take place over a video call. But in real life, interactions may be 30 seconds long, and that's all you need. But there may also be a, a couple of hours. Um, and you can't just rewrite how people interact because of, of you know, effectively a, a couple of years of events. And probably it's even a year within those two years where people have been forced to work from home um, if they can do. And then, you know, one other element which is common to every country in the world is people have for millennia um, bonded over food, right? Um, and it sounds a little bit weird to think about that, but you know, people become confident with each other and perhaps work better because of relationships they've created 
partly via the prism of bonding over food. And I've had meetings, you know, in lots of countries around the world, and people still go, we met at that time over that meal where we ate that specific dish or whatever. Those things remain important. You can't delete those behaviours, I believe. So, you know, networking or the network that we have is fundamental to um, the value, I think, that we have, the knowledge that we can accrue, the knowledge that we can iterate. And uh, so that's why, at the moment, I'm not sure exactly how much of COVID and what we learned from that um, was for that point in time versus being enduring. It's very interesting. I, I, until just talking with you today, I hadn't really thought about a lot, a lot of these concepts, uh, especially the enduring part. Yeah, because there was the assumption that it, that we everything changed, right? And uh, I think we're going back to our our set point, right? <laughs> you know how humans are. Yeah, I mean, you look at uh, you know lots of conferences uh, are happening again in person, and um, you know a common thing I hear from people meeting at events is, oh, it's a really great way to exchange points of view by meeting in person because effectively you're in a pool of let's say 50 people, all of you have different specializations. And sometimes the conversation you need to have with them is a minute long. And sometimes it needs to be a lot longer, but you don't get that. There is no um, online equivalent of that kind of um, meeting, there isn't. It's, it's very different. And we can pretend that we can do everything via the prism of an online rectangle, but, but we can't. And also it's the case that the technology to enable um, things to happen and things to happen in a hybrid way, um, we're still away from them. So, you know, I'd want to be able to have um, really large video screens to be able to see people in real life because people express themselves not just in terms of their heads and their shoulders, which is what you get on a video call, but through their entire body. And sometimes the head and the torso may not give the genuine expression of how somebody is feeling. Um, and particularly, say, when you're managing people, you want to be able to read them via their entirety of how they're communicating, and it's not just the words that they're saying. All right, that was great conversation, Paul. Thanks for joining us on AntCast. Thank you very much for having me. That was Deloitte technology and media industry expert, Paul Lee. That's it for this episode of AntCast. To make sure not to miss a single episode, please subscribe on iTunes or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm RT Warfield coming to you from London. Thank you for listening. Bye for now.